I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. The torpedo came from U-Boat 20, a German submarine. It was 2.10 on the afternoon of Friday, May 7, 1915, and the sub's captain recorded the moment in his log. Torpedo hit starboard side close behind the bridge. An unusually great detonation follows with a very strong explosive cloud. The 20-foot-long missile, armed with 350 pounds of TNT, had struck its target the Cunard's Lusitania, a British-owned luxury ship. The resulting tragedy, the Lusitania went down in just 18 minutes, would claim 1,198 lives, including 128 Americans. In the terror and the death, the chaos and the fire, the United States had just come closer to World War I, and to everything that came after. I'm John Meacham, and this is Hope Through History, Episode 4, Death at Sea. Wilson sort of stayed back, tried not to allow it to violate our neutrality. One step at a time, these things happened, and it was getting harder and harder for Wilson to do that. And it was this constant need to test your manhood. The greatest way to be manly is to go to war. The First World War is one of the most important and convulsive events in history. But since the cataclysm of World War II, what was known as the Great War of 1914 to 1918 has held an ever-diminishing place in the popular imagination. Yet without an understanding of the conflict that consumed Europe for four years in the teens, and which engaged the United States from 1917 to 1918, we can't fully grasp what came afterward. For the America of the 20th and 21st centuries has been fundamentally shaped by the war that began in the summer of 1914, when the assassination in Sarajevo of the Archduke Ferdinand set in motion a series of events that led to a prolonged, bloody, and consequential struggle that largely unfolded in the trenches and forests of the Old World. These black caskets carry Ferdinand and his wife to Vienna. They are the prelude to slaughter. A shot is fired in Serbia, and within a few hours, Germany is at war with half of Europe. 
French reserves are called to the colors. Germany mobilizes. And Russia. Never before has warfare been conducted on such a tremendous scale. Isolationism, extremism, the nature of dissent, the rise of new nations, and the spread of totalitarian ideologies. All these things can be traced to one degree or another to World War I. When, in February 1941, Henry Luce of the Time Life Empire published an editorial calling for an American century, he was writing about a world and a century that had come into being as a result of the Great War. In the pages of life, Luce wrote this. We have some things in this country which are infinitely precious and especially American. A love of freedom, a feeling for the equality of opportunity, a tradition of self-reliance and independence, and also of cooperation. In addition to ideals and notions which are especially American, we are the inheritors of all the great principles of Western civilization. Above all, justice, the love of truth, the ideal of charity. High-minded words, yes, but nevertheless deeply felt. And Luce's vision grew from a vision of America not as an island from the world, but as a beacon to it. That's not to say the United States was or is a perfect nation. We aren't. From the removal of native peoples to human enslavement to segregation and the denial of opportunity to all, we have committed grievous wrongs. The power of the American story, though, lies not in self-serving myths, but in its real progress amid appetite and ambition, and amid inequality and injustice. And we have made real progress. Not enough, and not quickly enough. But America at its best is always in the act of becoming, of becoming the more perfect union envisioned in the preamble of the Constitution. To grasp how the country became a source of possibility for the world, and why we continue to have to fight against the suffocation of isolationism, we must return to the North Atlantic on that May afternoon just over a century ago. We must return to the voyage and to the fate of the Lusitania. The war had begun in August 1914, a war between imperial powers seeking dominion as of old. In its origins and motivations, World War I was the most familiar of struggles, one for power and place, for territorial gain, for elemental human forces, greed and glory. There was no larger idea at stake in the clash than the designs of one empire against other empires. In its outward form, the war would have been recognizable to innumerable generations that had come before. In its scope and costs, though, it would have been unrecognizable. The novelist Henry James thought the war a plunge of civilization into this abyss of blood and darkness. Estimates of total casualties range as high as 40 million. The closest Western comparison was a fraction of that, 7 million for the Napoleonic Wars. World War I fueled the rise of ideologies, chiefly Nazism, that would lead to the even higher casualty figures of World War II. A young corporal who was gassed during the Great War would wear his iron cross down the years. Adolf Hitler never forgot the suffering and the humiliation of the German defeat. When war came to Europe in the summer of 1914, President Woodrow Wilson, grieving the death of his wife, 
sought to cool passions. He said, The United States must be neutral in fact as well as in name during these times that are to try men's souls. We must be impartial in thought as well as in action. Must put a curb upon our sentiments. Wilson was someone who was trying to stay out of war for all the domestic political reasons we can imagine. This is the historian and author, Michael Beschloss. Americans did not want to get involved in a war. They had been through the Spanish-American War, and they were not particularly eager to have a replay this soon thereafter. So there's incident after incident in the North Atlantic, which Wilson sort of stayed back, tried not to allow it to violate our neutrality. One step at a time, these things happened, and it was getting harder and harder for Wilson to do that. As the conflict dragged on month after month, it became clear that the United States did have national interests at stake. Democracies were thought to make better trading partners than empires. A German-dominated European system would likely reach across the seas and constrain American power and influence, possibly even giving the victorious Axis the means and the opportunity to violate the Monroe Doctrine and project force into the Western Hemisphere. What happened in Europe, in other words, did affect the United States. Yet, the American president and the American public were deeply reluctant to engage in war. It all felt far away, imperial, the kind of old-world conflict that Americans like to think that geography and fate had enabled them to escape. John Milton Cooper, Jr., the distinguished biographer, noted that The beginning of 1915 marked the moment when the war became the central, lasting fact of Wilson's presidency. The president spoke of the principles in play. He denounced conquest. He called for the sovereign rights of nations, and he proposed an international organization that would protect national boundaries and adjudicate disputes short of war. Wilson, however, faced a more immediate threat, Submarine warfare in the Atlantic, in which the German Navy sought to control, or at least terrorize, traffic to Europe. Still, the President knew that his country was not ready for war. In April 1915, he said, I am not speaking in a selfish spirit when I say that our whole duty for the present, at any rate, is summed up in this motto, America first. Then came the voyage of the Lusitania. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.
May 1st, 1915. The luxurious British liner, Lusitania, sails from New York. Aboard are hundreds of Americans. They ignore a notice published next to the announcement of the ship's sailing. A warning inserted by the German government. Travelers sailing in the war zone do so at their own risk. In his wonderful book on the disaster, Dead Wake, The Last Crossing of Lusitania, Eric Larson observed, In the dusty timeline of world events installed in my brain back in high school, the Lusitania affair constituted the skimpiest of entries, tucked somewhere between the Civil War and Pearl Harbor. Larson is not alone. But in real time, the story was very different. John Milton Cooper wrote this, Friday, May 7, 1915, was, in its time, what Sunday, December 7, 1941, and Tuesday, September 11, 2001, would be in theirs. May 7, 1915, Lusitania is sunk. 128 Americans are lost. Now there is a sense of crisis in Washington. The president wants to hold Germany accountable, but the Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan, says this will lead to war. The sinking of the glorious Lusitania was an inflection point. As Cooper wrote, the event instantly transformed the stance of the United States toward the war. It brought the shock of recognition. Gone were notions of viewing from afar a tragedy that was happening to someone else. Gone were ideas about enduring and managing a gradual accumulation of small incidents caused by blockades and sporadic submarine attacks. When Wilson heard the news, he canceled a planned round of golf and took a solitary walk around the Washington streets near the White House. He had a complicated task at hand, how to preserve American interests without going to war, which neither he nor the vast majority of Americans wanted to do. Thus began a twilight struggle of nearly two years' duration, as the United States, in a drama that would be somewhat repeated in 1939 to 1941, wrestled with the question of whether the fight was worth the cost. A bellicose Theodore Roosevelt, the former president who had failed in his third-party bid to regain the White House in 1912, was furious. After the Lusitania, T.R. wrote, I am pretty well disgusted with our government and with the way our people acquiesce in and support it. I suppose, however, in a democracy like ours, the people will always do well or ill, largely in proportion to their leadership. If Lincoln had acted after the firing of Sumter in the way that Wilson did about the sinking of the Lusitania, in one month the North would have been saying they were so glad he kept them out of war, and that they were too proud to fight, and that at all hazards fratricidal war must be averted. There was, particularly in what passed for an American ruling class, a desire to go to war. This is the journalist, author, and historian, Evan Thomas. And it was rooted in a couple of things. One was Anglophilia, just love of England and wanting to save England from the Germans. But deeper and more interesting, there was a war lover streak in the American upper class that wanted war in a kind of atavistic way as a test of manhood, 
There was a feeling in the upper classes in the late 19th century that they were becoming weak. The word was neurasthenic. They were suffering from maladies, headaches, lassitude. So people like Teddy Roosevelt, notably, went west and fought Indians and tried to be manly. And the greatest way to be manly is to go to war. And it was this constant need to test your manhood, to show that you were vigorous, that you were a conquering race. Woodrow Wilson is a member of the ruling class. He was the president of Princeton, but he's on the progressive wing of it, and he is not a war lover. He understands this dynamic. He's been around it, but he's not really part of it. He's a little bit more philosophical. He gets it. He understands it, but I don't think he, he's not Teddy Roosevelt. Presidential politics did play a crucial role. Wilson feared defeat for re-election in 1916 if he went to war, and so he delayed amid a long diplomatic game that produced few results. He knew that if we were involved in a war before he had to run for re-election in 1916, there was a very good chance that he would be defeated. Here again is Michael Beschloss. So what was his slogan? His slogan was, He kept us out of war, which was technically true, but Wilson knew that that was essentially a lie because it was an implicit promise that if you re-elected Wilson, he would continue to keep you out of war. He knew that that was probably a promise that he could not keep. And so the result was that Wilson in 1916 was extremely narrowly re-elected, basically by people who expected him to keep the United States out of war almost no matter what, and that was a false assumption. It was only in April 1917, after Germany announced unrestricted submarine warfare, after Wilson had won his election, after the intercept of a telegram from the German foreign minister to the German embassy in Mexico, that the United States joined the conflict. Wilson was very happy to try to underplay the importance of the Lusitania and say that this did not deserve America going to war. Yet, in early 1917, Wilson is saying there's this Zimmerman telegram and there's a possibility of a German threat to have a secret alliance with the Mexicans to maybe even overthrow the American government. He was grasping at straws to find a plausible reason at that point to go to war. That telegram, however dry, was a sequential chapter to the sinking of the Lusitania. In it, the foreign minister, Arthur Zimmerman, proposed offering the Mexican government a deal. Zimmerman had written, We intend to begin on the 1st of February, unrestricted submarine warfare. We shall endeavor in spite of this to keep the United States of America neutral. In the event of this not succeeding, we make Mexico a proposal of alliance on the following basis. Make war together, make peace together generous financial support, and an understanding on our part that Mexico is to reconquer the lost territory in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. If you're enjoying Hope Through History and want to hear other compelling stories about how the past impacts us today, Tune in to History This Week, an original podcast from the History Channel. 
Every Monday, History This Week turns back the clock to meet the people, visit the places, and witness the fascinating moments in time that have shaped our world today. With episodes spanning from ancient to modern history, exploring topics that you think you know, and some that weren't covered in textbooks, History This Week invites listeners on a journey to gain a new understanding of the momentous events that define us. History This Week is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Americans were aroused by newspaper stories and pictures of German atrocities in Belgium. And as the German army rolls onward, crushing everything in its path, Americans are outraged. But President Wilson urges the nation to be calm. The war is far away. American lives and property are not at stake. This desire to go to war that really was in a distinct minority of the population caught fire when the kindling was right. When the Germans were sufficiently outrageous and it's a current that always runs in American life. Slow to go to war, but when we do, go to war all the way and violently. Wilson went to Congress shortly thereafter to ask, at last, for a declaration of war. He said, The present German submarine warfare against commerce is a warfare against mankind. It is a war against all nations. American ships have been sunk, American lives taken, in ways which it has stirred us very deeply to learn of. But the ships and people of other neutral and friendly nations have been sunk and overwhelmed in the waters in the same way. There has been no discrimination. The challenge is to all mankind. Each nation must decide for itself how it will meet it. The choice we make for ourselves must be made with a moderation of counsel and a temperateness of judgment befitting our character and our motives as a nation. We must put excited feeling away. Our motive will not be revenge or the victorious assertion of the physical might of the nation, but only the vindication of right, of human right, of which we are only a single champion. Swiftly the menace of war grew into dread reality as American ships and ships carrying American citizens were torpedoed sent to the bottom by the ruthless campaign of the unseen tigers of the sea, the submarines. And finally the day came when Franklin Roosevelt's chief, President Woodrow Wilson, sadly and reluctantly set his hand and seal to the declaration of war. America's war aims were clear. As Wilson put it, the world must be made safe for democracy. Its peace must be planted upon the tested foundations of political liberty. We have no selfish ends to serve. We desire no conquests, no dominion. We seek no indemnities for ourselves, no material compensation for the sacrifices we shall freely make. We are but one of the champions of the rights of mankind. We shall be satisfied when those rights have been made as secure as the faith and the freedom of nations can make them. Armistice. Men go mad with joy. They are alive. They have survived. It was not, of course, the war to end all wars. But it was, in the end, a war that illuminates the tensions we historically experience as we engage the world. What was so manifest with Lusitania, and what became a consuming reality, was the American tendency to be ambivalent about distant conflicts 
until danger self-evidently threatens us directly. In his History of the Great War, Winston Churchill wrote, What Wilson did in April 1917 could have been done in May 1915. And if done then, what abridgment of the slaughter, what sparing of the agony, what ruin, what catastrophes would have been prevented? In how many million homes would an empty chair be occupied today? How different would be the shattered world in which victors and vanquished alike are condemned to live? Always eloquent, Churchill was pleading a special case, the case of a combatant who needed America's help. It was a role he would play again. War is perhaps the greatest of history's tragedies. It can never be taken lightly, nor should it be conducted jingoistically. What the U-20 torpedo helped begin, the Zimmerman telegram brought to a conclusion. And even now we live with the implications of these seemingly remote events. Next on Hope Through History, Bloody Sunday and America's Reckoning with Voting Rights, a struggle that unfolds still on the next Hope Through History. Thank you for listening to Hope Through History, a documentary podcast presentation from C-13 Originals in association with the History Channel. Executive produced by me, John Meacham, and Chris Corcoran. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Edited, produced, mixed, and mastered by Chris Basil. Produced and production engineering and research support by Paige Heimson, Ian Mont, Bill Schultz, Bob Tabador, and Sean Sherry. Creative consultation by Eli Lehrer and Jesse Katz. Graphic design, marketing, and publicity by Brian Swarth, Hilary Schuff, Josephina Francis, and Kurt Courtney. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.